Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. The importance of mental health is discussed everywhere today, from workplaces and schools to television shows and social media. In most cases, however, it has a distinctly secular approach. There is rarely any mention of the role that faith and spirituality can play in mental well-being. A recent study by Yaqeen Institute makes the case that religiosity is not only relevant to mental health, but central to it. What are the biggest factors affecting the mental health of Muslims? How can religiosity lead to positive psychological outcomes? And can religiosity even be measured? Welcome to a new episode of Double Take, a podcast by Yaqeen Institute about the questions and ideas around Islam and Muslims that give us pause. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear or want to share some feedback, you can do so directly using the link in the show notes. I'm Mohammed Zaud, and today we're exploring the actual relationship between religiosity and psychological well-being. I'm joined by Dr. Uthman Umarji and Dr. Farah Islam, co-authors of a new article and study by Yaqeen Institute titled Faith in Mind, Islam's Role in Mental Health. Dr. Uthman is the Director of Survey Research and Evaluation at Yaqeen. He studied Islam in Al-Azhar University in Cairo and he has a PhD in Educational Psychology from UC Irvine, where he is also an adjunct professor in the School of Education. Dr. Farah is the Director of Psycho-Spirituality Studies at Yaqeen Institute. She's a mental health advocate, educator and researcher. She has a PhD in epidemiology from York University, and she is currently a student in the Scholar of Islamic Sciences Alamiya program at Mathaba Institute. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Uthman, Dr. Farah, Salam alaikum, and welcome back. Wa alaikum salam, Brother Muhammad. So good to see you. Alaikum salam. I don't know about you guys, but um, for me growing up, anytime I was feeling down or out, uh, I was told by my parents, go and pray go and read Quran. And my parents, much like the rest of the Muslim community, would equate poor mental health with poor religiosity and vice versa. I'd say in our community, there are probably two camps. On one side, there are people who think that if we just, move, we just do more direct worship, like read Quran, pray fast, we won't experience mental illness like depression or anxiety. And on the other hand, there are people who treat mental health like physical health, just like you go to the doctor for a broken bone. You're supposed to go to a, I guess, uh, a professional, a mental health professional, a secular mental health professional for a broken brain, so to speak. Um, and that religion is not related. So you both conducted a very, very comprehensive study about the relationship between religiosity and mental health. And I'm very, very interested to find out what were your conclusions? The big conclusion from the study, Alhamdulillah, was that mental health was related to one's religiosity or religiosity was related to one's mental health. But there's a lot to unpack because the answer is neither of the two things that you have presented, right? Neither does uh, just opening the Quran to read it and, and praying gonna solve all mental health problems, nor is simply going to uh, you know, a secular mental health practitioner so we need to be very careful when we talk about this relationship. It is quite nuanced and detailed, and inshallah we'll unpack that over the next uh, few minutes, inshallah. 
So what would you what would you say are the key takeouts from the study? Tell me more about the study actually, because a lot of people have a lot to say about Islam and mental health. So tell me why you you went on and focused on this topic, what you did, how the study kind of was put together, and then let's go through the two or three major findings. Sure, Bismillah. So the uh, imperative and the purpose behind this entire study, first and foremost, um, was this big question actually of what is religiosity. So it was first and foremost a study about what is religiosity, and then secondly, we investigated um, how does religiosity relate to mental health. And so just to, the, to take a step back, you know, people all the time talk about these things like, oh, what is the role of religion in life? What's the role of religion in mental health? What's the role of religion in X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. And the first question that one has to answer is what in the world do you mean by religiosity? Right? Do you mean that I have a nice beard on my face? So that makes me religious, right? Or I have a headscarf, right? Or my, you know, whatever it might be, whatever we think, you know, every culture has their indicators. We always joke about this, you know, for some folks, it's like, you know, is, is the meat halal, right? Is the beard long or the pants short? Got those three, mashallah, right? Right, and for other people, no, 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 Islam is only in my heart, right? And like, mashallah, your heart is big, you can do sujood in your heart, so on and so forth, right? So, so it's like, no, it's like, there is a lot to religiosity and people often do such a disservice when they say things like, well, if you go to the masjid on a Friday, well, I guess you're religious, or if you go to church on a Sunday. So that's kind of where this came from. And so to understand that question, we went to a global audience, right? We went to Muslims from all over the world. I don't remember the number of countries, but it's more than 50 countries um, from Asia, Africa, North America, even some in South America. Um, unfortunately, as one of our Yaqeen fellows reminds us, we just don't get anyone from Antarctica yet. So inshallah, we'll get there, right? But, um, and collectively, right, we really were able to come up with what we believe is a much more broad definition of religiosity. And then we use that to understand uh, a number of different mental health related outcomes. Uh, and that's because, uh, maybe I should have Dr. Fah jump in like, just like we don't really know exactly what uh, religiosity means when people say it, sometimes people use the word mental health and they mean all kinds of different things. So before we can tell you exactly what we found, maybe we should define you know, such a found fundamental term. Most of the times there's so much confusion when it comes to defining mental health. Um, oftentimes I've heard people say things like, oh, that person struggles with mental health. But wait a minute, mental health is a positive term, right? It's like physical health. He wouldn't say someone's struggling with physical health. Um, so there's so much confusion. And generally speaking, most people, when they think of the word mental health or anything with mental, really, they think of something negative. So they think of uh, psychopathology is generally what we would say, like depression or anxiety or mental illness. And they forget that mental health actually encompasses positive measures of mental health as well, like well-being and life satisfaction and thriving and flourishing and so much more. And so I think the UN has a really good definition of mental health. They talk about how, you know, it's like actualizing yourself, finding your most optimal self, uh, contributing to your society, all these things. And so um, not only did we at Yaqeen want to have a holistic definition of religiosity, because of course our deen is a way of life, but we also wanted to have a really holistic or at least multifaceted understanding of mental health. So we had five different mental health outcome measures in this study. So it's not just the mental illnesses that we tend to kind of think about when we, when we say mental health, it's more about the positive thriving outcomes it's both exactly it's it's a combination of both it's it's so much more than just focusing on depression or anxiety which we often do but then there's these positive measures too okay so that's clear in terms of religiosity just so that we can go to the um the outcomes of the study how did we define religiosity 
Is it just reading Quran and fasting and praying um, and, and the rituals of Islam? Yeah, Jazakumullah khair. So we took a very Quranic and uh, Hadith-oriented approach thinking about all the things that Allah and His Messenger have said that underlie you know, these ideas of like birr, right? Righteousness right? or Iman um, or Islam or Ihsan. And there's, there's obviously so many and we can't cover everything. But we kind of tried to focus on like the big landmark aspects of one's religious practice. So we picked, uh, there were six total dimensions, but I'll make it three to make our life easy for today. One of them had to do with kind of our beliefs and our attitudes. That's like one just big bucket. Like how do you see the world from a religious lens? Um, how, do you have trust right, in Allah when things happen the way that you don't expect them to happen? So that was one big bucket, just kind of what's happening here in terms of your orientation towards life. Uh, number two had to be the, the actual practice. So both the quality and the quantity. So do you read the Quran? Do you pray? Um, what is the quality of that experience? Do you feel a connection to Allah? Do you feel close to Allah? Do you feel at peace when you do these things? The third thing that people don't speak a lot about is the fact that religiosity in our faith especially is related to living in a vibrant community, which means you are a part of that community, right? You're a part of the Ummah of Muhammad um, You're connected to other Muslims, right? Who live around you or in a larger vicinity and you actually contribute right, to the world in a positive way. So those three dimensions of your beliefs and attitude in your mind, right, your actual spiritual practices, and then your engagement with the community, both in being involved and contributing, for us that gave us like a broad lens on what is holistic religiosity. Okay, so we're going to go into the, uh, the outcomes of your study. It was a very comprehensive study. And um, just to summarize so far, we're defining religiosity as three things. Someone's beliefs, they need to actually believe in Islam and in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and they need to have a positive relationship with those beliefs. Um, it's the, the rituals and practices. So they need to be fasting and praying and then they're engaged in their community and doing kind of good within their community uh, Islamically. That's kind of the religiosity piece. Mental health, we're saying mental health is not just mental illnesses. It's more of the positive stuff such as living your best self. Um, with that said, what were the outcomes of your study? If I'm religious, am I happier? Do I have a better mental health? Great, all right. So now that we are very clear on definitions, we'll take it one by one. So we're gonna break this into two. The question will be, how does religiosity influence uh, mental illness? And then we'll tackle, how does religiosity influence flourishing or thriving or the positive side of mental health? And so the, so the first finding is that religiosity has a small relationship with um, depression and anxiety and some of the negative aspects. And I say small because there are much more dominant factors that exist out there, both dominant psychological factors, demographic factors um, that underlie this. I mean, a whole lot we know about uh, psychopathology is there's genetic components, right? There's environmental components, uh, components. So yes, religiosity had an effect, right? And those who were more religious had fewer symptoms of depression and anxiety, but it wasn't by any means the largest predictor. Now, so that now we go to the other side where we say, how did religiosity influence thriving? Well, actually it was the biggest component that we could find more than your wealth, your education, whether you're married, how old you were, your gender. Being religious in this holistic sense was heavily related to your life satisfaction, having a strong purpose in life and your like subjective well-being. Like how do you feel right now about your state? Uh, that's very interesting. Why are we saying that, um... Or why do you think there is less of a correlation between mental illnesses and religiosity and then more of a correlation 
between religiosity and, and thriving and the positive side of mental health? And just as Dr. Rathman was talking about, when we're talking about mental illness and psychopathology, there's a large genetic component. There's family history, there's trauma, there's so many other variables that are involved that can contribute to a person dealing with depression or anxiety in their life. But when it comes to those thriving, flourishing, or those, you know, well-being types of measures of positive mental health, our religiosity is this amazing source of strength amazing source of coping for us as Muslims. And really, it gives us that sort of meaning in life. You know, there's this great book. I don't know if you brought it, uh, Brother Muhammad, but it's called Flow. It's about the, the optimal science of happiness or something. Yes. So, you know, the, the scientist, he went around to all these different people. And when he spoke to Muslims, he actually found them to be some of the happiest people he met. And that's because they found meaning in their suffering, which I found subhanAllah so fascinating, right? And so because... As Muslims, we're able to, you know, go through their life is hard. It's right? there are hardships in life and we know we're going to be tested through life. And they're able to meet as believers. We're able to meet those tests with an understanding that there is a reason for it. There is a capital R reason for why I'm going through what I'm going through. My tears have a reason for why they're here. You know, there is like that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has my back that Allah wants Jannah for me, right? That there's this bigger reason for it um, helps us um, have greater positive mental health uh, just through this understanding and, and worldview, alhamdulillah. Yeah, and if I just add empirically, Brother Muhammad, to what we did find, because you, you would say, well, if religiosity is not the biggest predictor of psychopathology, then what is, right? And so what we found was that um, this is really interesting kind of psychological idea, which is how comfortable somebody is with uncertainty or how uncomfortable someone is with uncertainty. So we call this uncertainty intolerance. And so we found that people who endorse these beliefs, and I don't like it when I don't have certainty in, in, in decision making, those people had the highest levels of psychopathology, which makes sense because if anxiety is all about being you know, fearful or it's having that emotional response to something you don't know about, right? That you don't know what's going to happen. Right? And of course, anxiety and depression are correlated. So if you said, well, what predicts psychopathology in Muslims and non-Muslims, uncertainty and tolerance is probably the largest predictor that we know about. And so just, just religious practice can't eliminate right, just you know, that uncertainty that you're going through and that discomfort you have. Dr. Othman, you're going to have to break it down for me. I'm a very, very simple person. Yeah. I did read flow, but um, uncertainty and tolerance, just explain what that is. Yeah. And explain how this is connected to, to Islam, please. Yeah, great. So the term uncertainty intolerance, right? It's, it's a de the definition of it. It's a, it's a bias that we have in our mind that affects the way that we feel and we think and we approach situations that um, we don't fully know what's going to happen, right? So I'll give you an example. Like if you're going to go um, get up right now and you're going to go, let's say, for, uh, you know, for a run somewhere, right? Now, what would you probably do? You might pull out your phone to check the weather, so you put on the exact clothing you need for the weather that you're under, right? Now, if I said, hey, you're gonna go for a run, but you're not gonna know what the weather is like, you might be like, oh my God, I, I, I hate that. I really like to be in control of the situation. I wanna exactly the trail. If I said, I'm just gonna drop you in the forest, go for a run, you might be like, I can't handle that level of uncertainty, right, in what I'm doing. So, so that especially, keep in mind one thing. So this study was run, you know, uh, during you know, this pandemic that we've been living in, right? And this was a time of global uncertainty, right? People didn't know when is this going to end? Is there a lockdown today? Is there not a lockdown today? When are my kids gonna to go to school? So of course it's heightened in that people are really having to cope with uncertainty. So the inability or the, the dislike of being in uncertain situations, right? Creates, us, creates a sense of anxiety and worry in us 
And that worry and that anxiety leads us to sometimes catastrophizing the future. In other words, saying, you know what? Since I don't really know what's going to happen, I probably think the worst is going to happen. Right? And then, of course, if you think the worst is going to happen, right, that's going to negatively affect how you feel about life. But Dr. Uthman, do you feel like that's specific to Muslims? That just sounds like a general kind of human thing. Yes. Um, is that correct? Yeah, so it's not specific to Muslims. So when we're doing this study, like we're trying to isolate religiosity, but we're looking at all kinds of other factors that are shared between Muslims and non-Muslims. So like for instance, age. So then how does religiosity impact uncertainty, intolerance? Yeah, that is a really, really good question. So in this study, we were unable to answer that question, but we have a number of beliefs and thoughts about this. So um, the key thing is this ties into the idea of tawakkul in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right. Like we, Allah has made this world uncertain for us. We know that. Right. Like he told us in the Quran in multiple places. Right. That that you only Allah knows. Right. When the rain is going to fall. He knows what's in the wombs of the mother. Right. Whether it's a boy or a girl, they're going to be happy or sad. He knows how much money we're going to make. So Allah made the world uncertain. So what are we supposed to do with that uncertainty? Right. For a believer, there's an element of trusting in Allah. Right. And saying, you know what? Allah, it will always be there for me. Even if I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like, I know I can count on Allah to make tomorrow a livable, you know, uh, actually not just livable, to make it a place where I can succeed and I can thrive. And, and that's why we go back to this idea of your beliefs and your attitudes. Because one can read the Quran, right? One can pray, right? One can donate, right? And do some of these kind of direct practices. But if your worldview is not oriented to saying, you know what? I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but I'm okay with that, right? I'm okay with that because I know that Allah is in charge, right? Without that, um, kind of attitude towards one's life, right? They're going to be paralyzed with uncertainty. So religiosity, if done properly, can reduce our uncertainty and tolerance. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about religious doubt. We covered this uh, several episodes ago on, on Double Take and religious doubt does exist in our community. Uh, we did mention in this episode that being religious has a positive impact on your life. That's great to hear. But what if you have religious doubt is there a correlation? Do I, do I live a more difficult life or do I have uh, uh, more chances of having some sort of difficult mental health or bad mental health if I have religious doubts? Yeah, that's a great question, Brother Muhammad. So yes, in our study, we did find that religious doubt and what we mean by religious doubt is the, the, the discomfort that people feel when they have unanswered questions about their faith, that experiencing that more frequently is related to having more depressive and anxiety symptoms. Now, one thing that our study could not determine, which was uh, which is causing which. So is it that poor mental health causes people to have more doubts or is it that having more doubts causes poor mental health? Now, we, we speculate that they're related to one another, right? That, you know, there can be a feedback cycle, right? That if you are suffering from, from mental illness, right? That, that's, that's painful, right? And you might start to have questions about your faith that, well, is my faith you know, true was answering, you know, if my faith was correct, then I should, maybe I shouldn't be having these things. So that can create that cycle. And you can have the inverse where simply that, well, if you feel religious doubt, well, you might feel like a bad Muslim and you might start to have, um, you know, more kind of just like now fear about who you are, where you're going to go in the afterlife. And that can cause mental um, pain as well. And this is what you find with the companions of the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam when they came to the Prophet during their experiences of religious doubt. And they came into to Rasulullah and they said, Ya Rasulullah, that we experience these, these, these uh, we have these thoughts that creep into our minds about Allah and we hate having these thoughts. And the Prophet kind of looked at them and he said that, do you really have those thoughts? And they said, yes. And he said, 
that is a sign of clear faith. And so it's a very interesting answer because the Prophet Muhammad is doing a couple of things. Number one, he is validating the fact that doubts may exist even in good, righteous, religious people. So it's not mutually exclusive to have doubts and to be religious. Um, second of all, those doubts are painful because no one wants to feel that, that uh, you know, that, that, that uh, all the baggage that comes with feeling like you don't have certainty when it comes to the most important part of your life. So the Prophet is validating the experience of doubt and the feelings with doubt and then saying, you have good faith if those doubts are causing you pain, right? Because that's a sign that you have faith, that you don't want to have them in the first place. So the companions experienced it. And then even Ibrahim, not to use the term doubt with him, but this questioning of faith that when he went to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he said, oh Allah, tell me how you, how do you bring life back to the dead? And Allah asked Ibrahim, do you not believe? Ibrahim said, I do believe, but it will increase me in my, you know, in my certainty. And so Ibn Abbas, the great companion, he said this is the most hopeful ayah in the Quran to him because Ibrahim was able to ask a question like this and Allah accepted you know, his, his answer essentially. Allah accepted the fact that he said, I believe, but I'm looking for more. Right? So, um, I mean, it's all putting all this together. Religious doubts can cause some mental pain and anguish, um, but it doesn't mean that one is not practicing or one is not religious. And and then is it correct for me to say that being religious gives you that path um, to alleviate those religious doubts? Like there's a path back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then the positive mental health outcomes because of the things that you just mentioned, that it's acknowledged that, you know, a religious Muslim can have those religious doubts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the key things that we, we always talk about in any field of work is the match between the expectations you have and the reality. So if one is um, kind of told and taught that there will be points in your life where you have these deep questions, that's okay. That is liberating to know that, you know, I expect this might happen to me. So I'm ready when they happen and I'm not going to tear myself up when they happen. Just like if you told somebody, you know what, no matter how hard you study in school and no matter what you do, you know, there's going to be setbacks. Preparing someone for knowing that there will be challenges is a very liberating force. So that's what we want to give our, our community to say, doubts may happen and don't beat yourself up when they happen. Actually, it's a sign you have faith if you're concerned about having religious doubts. So I have a question. I'm assuming after interviewing Muslims in 50 different countries that you uncovered some interesting things about the Muslim mental health industry. Um, are there anything or is there anything that you'd like to say to, to Muslim mental health practitioners and to sheikhs actually who um, are expected to have, you know, a psych degree these days? Um, did you uncover anything interesting and, and do you have any advice for the industry? So one of our big recommendations out of the research, for sure, is if, if we're putting forth this idea that Muslim mental health is this construct and there's this inextricable link between religiosity and mental health for us as Muslims, that it makes sense for mental health care for Muslim populations to be at this nexus of religiosity, as in caring for our spiritual well-being, at the same time as caring for our mental health. And so, you know, we definitely do put forth that recommendation that mental health therapists or the, the just the whole field of Islamic psychotherapy work hard to bridge those two parts of ourselves. So they're putting forth care and, and mental health care options and spiritual care options that are marrying the two because they're clearly so 
inter, you know, what can we see? So intimately intertwined for us as Muslims and so important to our well-being. Um, so as is imams, you know, subhanAllah, one of the great recommendations is to get some mental health training to to um, to understand counseling theory and to understand that other side of of human emotions and, and learning to, to deal with people on that level. And at the same time, for those working in the mental health space, right, it's not just enough to be a Muslim who happens to also be a therapist, right? Offering someone that Islamic psychotherapy or that type of really um, that bridging between that religious care and that spiritual, sorry, the spiritual and the religious care as well as that mental health care requires intensive training um, as well. So just to be mindful of, of putting that recommendation forward as well. Would you um, would you say if I go to a Muslim therapist, um, and th- that's enough? Just someone who is uh who is understanding of my context is that enough uh do you think for me to get the best mental health outcomes or do they need to study something specific or do they need to be aware of certain things uh based on your study yes we would say no it requires actually intensive training just like an imam having to go for an msw or counseling a master's in counseling it's it's a similar thing where a therapist would need to go through you know years of understanding and of of islam of of islamic history of mental health care in, in the muslim populations of trying to understand you know all the relevant verses from the quran and hadith etc that really relate to emotional health and well-being and being able to do that within a in a way that's thoughtful it actually marries the two let's be very clear there's a difference between muslim mental health and islamic mental health So just because someone is a Muslim mental health practitioner doesn't mean they practice anything Islamic whatsoever. And I use the analogy with schools all the time, right? You know, my work is in education for the most part. We have a lot of, um, there is a difference between being in a Muslim school and an Islamic school, right? And and so just the sheer nature of going to a Muslim is not going to give you an Islamic experience. And so just like Dr. Farah has mentioned, it is so integral that a Muslim mental health therapist learn not everything about Islam, but learn how Islam plays into what their role is, which is spiritual care. So what does Islam say about those big, you know, there's, there's counseling theories that are out there. Are those counseling theories that are being used in line with our faith? Are the practices being recommended in line with our faith? How do we bring in the Islamic worldview into our counseling? So that requires, I would always say, it's, it's, it's like a professional development, right? It's this ongoing journey of learning about Islamic tazkiyah, right? About Islamic spirituality, right? About Islamic interventions that have been done with their scientific research on this work. Yeah. Oh, we are. Yeah, exactly. So alhamdulillah, just like anything else, there's quality um, variability in everything. So we have phenomenal, you know, Islamically grounded, grounded therapists. And we have some who are just Muslim by, you know, they're Muslim, but they don't know anything about incorporating Islam. So we have wonderful examples of scholars in this country um, who have gone on to then study mental health and be very, very competent in practicing it. We've had therapists who've gone on to study Islam in quite a bit of detail, uh, and they're able to do this. So we have many, many examples, but for the individual who's looking for care, it's really important that you actually identify that is this just a Muslim or someone who actually knows how to incorporate Islam. And I think that will um, help you determine if you're going to get Islamically grounded care or you're just going to get maybe culturally you know, acceptable care, right? Because it's, it does so help even where if- Where does a Muslim, yeah, where does yeah. a Muslim psych go? Like, wh- what would they yeah. do? They, they finish their degree, they're Muslim, yeah. sure, they've, they've studied a bit of 
you know, Islamic stuff just by being in the community. But what do they have to do in order to to seriously integrate some of the concepts you're mentioning into their into their practice? Yeah, great question. So there are a number of different programs that are out there. Some are international, right? There are certain programs that teach courses on Islamic psychotherapy. Um, I don't have all the names of the courses handy, but if, if a therapist is interested in that field, there are many avenues to go about formally to learn that. Then beyond the formal instruction, this is just about being in learning settings about Islam where you can actually pull information and you learn about Tazkiyah and you now see the connection. You say, oh, okay, I see how in cognitive behavioral therapy, right, we have these tools, and I see in Islamic spirituality, we kind of have these other ideas. How do I bring these two together? So there is an element of, 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 uh, of creativity on the therapist's part to bring these two worlds together. And honestly, this is a very exciting time because we're in the infancy of developing these things. So someone who's passionate about it, it's not like, oh, well, everything's been done. I just got to go through the motions. It's like you can actually help bring this whole field to life. So, um, you know, we have here locally where I live in Southern California, right? One of our senior fellows, right? Dr. Hassan, right? You know, is an incredibly competent, you know, a scholar of Islam from, from the spirituality side and also did a master's in therapy. And now he runs a clinic, right? That serves Southern California. So there's examples of individuals right, who are out there who have taken this upon themselves. Now he's working to train those other therapists who are there. And so inshallah, over the coming decades, I believe this will be kind of, we won't be having this conversation inshallah in 20 years, right? It'll be like, okay, like everyone knows, like, it's kind of like 30 years ago, if you said, where can I hear khutbah in English, right? In the West, like now we don't have that problem, right? Inshallah, we'll have the same issue when it comes to Muslim, Islamically grounded no, I really, therapy. I really hope that's yeah. the case. Because I, I honestly, like, one of the reasons I don't go see a shrink when, when I feel like I, I should is like, what would they know about my context? And if I go to a Muslim one, like really, am I going to get anything um, professional? But I, I do feel like things are changing. Um, I am seeing Muslim uh, psych centers um, and clinics opening up. I see more, more sophisticated uh, Muslims getting involved in the space. And so I'm, I'm glad and I'm excited to see what happens um, in, in the coming decade or so. We're all very excited and we are doing that. That's why this research is being done. I mean, we're hoping that we're just scratching the surface of this and we will continue you know. to unpack this and hopefully our findings help. And the goal is that the clinicians take these findings and say, okay, what can we do with this, right? So it's, it's one baby step at a time. Right? Yeah, like a problem identified is a problem solved. I think you, exactly. you, you both have done a great job at identifying um, the, certainly the correlation and the problem. One final question before we move into the, the rapid fire. Um, that's supposed to improve your mental health, mind you. Um, the uh, the question in your in your article about the practical pieces of advice. Um, so I I want to use my religion to improve my mental health. What do I do? Exactly. So hopefully through all this discussion, we've convinced you, inshallah, that my mental health is inextricably linked to my, so my religiosity is inextricably, inextricably linked to my mental health. So what can I do? What can I do to engage my mental health, nurture my mental health, so I can also better connect with my Lord, inshallah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there are a couple of things. So in general, if we're seeing that religiosity is connected to this idea of, of positive measures of mental health, then engaging in that holistic religiosity is a fantastic way to boost our mental health, boost our well-being, boost our sense of life satisfaction, boost our sense of life purpose, inshallah. So listening and reciting Quran is a beautiful way to uh, enter into that as inshallah as as the quran really is at the heart of all our conversations about mental health as it is the source of con 
contentment and comfort for us as believers. It brings contentment to the hearts at Hamdulillah. And another one is deep and mindful prayer as well. You know, when we're engaging in salah, where we're really present and we're mindful and conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being in front of us and, and understanding that we are going to meet him and what that means when we cry those tears in our tahajjud, those are those times when we're really connecting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that again really boosts our mental health because of that deep connection, that deep intimacy. You know, we were created to worship him. You know, that's where we find our sense of purpose. That's where we find our sense of contentment and joy in our life. Alhamdulillah. Um, engaging in helping others is another really big one. This idea of pro-social behavior. Um, it's it's amazing, alhamdulillah, how much that is what, you know, connects us as a community, connects us to each other, gives us a sense of purpose. Again, that I am even just as just little little old me can help someone else. You know, I can give food to my neighbor, whatever it is, but it helps me connect with this greater community, this greater ummah that I'm a part of and greater humanity as well, subhanAllah. And that's such a such a big feeling, alhamdulillah, just being a part of this greater whole. Um, and, and, and again, it just kind of also reminds us of the incredible good that we are capable of. And I think we all need that reminder, especially in our low points. So a wonderful way to boost your mental health for sure. Living an active lifestyle. We talked about Brother Muhammad being busy at the gym, lifting his weights. Um, I know Dr. Uthman <laughs> playing golf, mashallah. I, I don't know how much physical activity that involves, but hey, you know, walking around on the green, that's, that's good too. But uh, living an active lifestyle, there are there's just a whole host of research that talks about the incredible connection between physical health and mental health. And we're really doing a disservice to ourselves when we don't engage in that physical lifestyle. And, you know, alhamdulillah, I know Dr. Othman makes sure that he works out or tries to, inshallah, every day, similarly <laughs> as well. You know, not just for the mental health connection. It's just, it just helps you feel better. It helps you sleep better. There's so many, there's so many ways in which that it just helps, alhamdulillah. And there are ways too, right, that you can connect your um, religious life with your active life, if this makes sense. So when you go for a hike, you know, do your, do your tadabur, do your tafakkur, you know, do your dhikr, you know, whether it's the evening, evening re um, remembrance or the, the morning remembrance, go for a, go for those walks and, and remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What a beautiful way to combine uh, these wonderful practices. So the last one, inshallah, is that of muraqaba and, and tafakkur. There is this beautiful, a lot of, a lot of great research right now talking about how this you know, deep contemplation, that of being tafakkur and muraqaba, this kind of idea of Islamic mindfulness and this idea of, of reminding ourselves that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always watching us, is, is watchful over us and how then, then we have to incorporate that watchfulness into ourselves, you know, how much that sort of deep mindfulness contemplation, how that can be transformative in our lives as well. You know, we are, we live these busy lives. We're always caught in all this, you know, busyness, all this change, all this, this sort of, I don't know, constant sort of chaos, subhanAllah. And so if we're able to slow down and have those moments where we really deeply reflect and remind ourselves of our actual purpose in life, it just helps uh, to, to, to helps improve our mental health and well-being so much. Dr. Farah, Jazakallah Khair. And I'm really glad you both um, worked so hard on this, on this project because it is a, a service to the Muslim community. Um, 
across the globe. You mentioned uh, when you dwindle into chaos um, that uh, religiosity helps, uh, I guess, uh, pull you out of the, the trenches. When I dwindle into chaos, and this is my first rapid fire question, um, I typically spend 10 minutes making a good cup of coffee. So my first question to you both is uh, when you walk into your favorite coffee shop, what do you order? You guys tell us, Brother Mohammed, what's in your cup right now beside you? Um, so this is probably Kenyan beans, <laughs> single origin. It took the it took the barista this morning about ten minutes to make with the V60. Oh, Full disclosure: I'm not a coffee person, so if I walk into a coffee shop, I'll, I'll probably get some latte that has milk in it to get rid of the coffee flavor. Um, but I'm, I'm a big chai drinker, so I drink chai every morning and every afternoon. I'm going to be even worse. I don't drink caffeine at all. So I'm so sorry, but Mohammed, I am no aficionado in this, in this respect. I'm, I'm offended. What was the last <laughs> book you've read? The last book I read was Burnout by Amelia and Emily Nagoski, which was really, really fascinating. You know, I think oftentimes we have this very superficial idea of self-care and they were talking about how, you know, if we want to eliminate burnout or really work harder towards not experiencing so much burnout in our lives. And I feel we all do SpanAllah, right? Um, it requires that really deep work of going back and, and, and trying to understand and unpack uh, all our traumas or difficulties that we've actually faced. It requires that deep contemplation to, to really, you know, bubble baths and I don't know. <laughs> those things that that's not going to help it's uh, it's really that deep work and I, and I really appreciated that dr Othman, the last book that can i say the last book you wrote because i've been <laughs> reading your book to, to my kids i hope i hope they're enjoying it uh I, I am working on another one but it's not going so fast so we'll go back to what i read um one of the what's books the I topic was... no no i want to know because um it's their favorite uh, book so what's the next book that you're writing the next one is the novel on the life of Musa salam. So we got Suleyman done. We're moving on to Musa. MashaAllah. And yeah. the last book you read? The last book I've been reading is called The Secret uh, Wisdom of Nature. Uh, it is a book that builds on uh, a previous book I read called The Hidden Life of Trees. And it really walks you through the intricacies of ecosystems in a, in a very like therapeutic sense, to be honest. It like, kind of walks you Amazing. through every little thing that happens and how it connects something greater. So it's, uh, for me, it's a book of Iman, right? Literally, it's, a, it's Kitab al-Iman for me, so. MashaAllah. Um, your favorite Sahabi? Mm. I got to go with Omar bin Khattab. I don't know, I'm living in a world where I feel like uh, manliness is kind of not where it needs to be. And so he just represents this really strong, um, I think, exemplar for us in how to be um, firm, strong, uh, a good leader, yet at the same time, uh, you know, have the attributes uh, of, of being sensitive when you need to be sensitive. But yeah, Omar right now, these things change with time. Maybe you ask me in five years, it'll change, but I'm on the Omar bandwagon right now. Brother Lahmai. I also always, I'm always quoting Omar as well. His incredible and immense taqwa um, is so inspiring to me as well. Alhamdulillah. Dr. Othman, your PhD is in educational psychology. I, I've come across uh, enough terms in this episode to last me a lifetime of, uh, of dictionary uh, 
you know, going through a dictionary. So what is educational psychology, please? Uh, yeah, so it's a fancy term. This essentially it's it's at the intersection of both studying the educational systems and how children, adolescents, they learn uh, and progress through the years of schooling and integrating that more with the psychological front. So kind of more to do with the beliefs and the attitudes uh, that influence how kids think about education. So my work was all about student motivation and I studied what in the world causes students to be motivated towards academics and not to be um, motivated. So. And uh, Dr. Farah, you have a PhD in epidemiology. What have you pulled from that that has impacted your current work at Yaqeen? <laughs> So, you know what, I looked at the epidemiology of mental health. So I was already studying mental health then. So I'm just taking that and putting it towards the study of mental health of Muslims, inshallah, at Yaqeen. So it all works. Okay. It all ties in, alhamdulillah. One final question. If we had the ideal Muslim psych center, what would that look like? For, tra for treating patients or for training people to be therapists? You, you tell me what would be a better service to the Muslim community. I'll let so, Dr. Farah take it. <laughs> okay, so one of my big, hairy, audacious goals, so big BHAG, right? One of my BHAGs is wanting to establish a Muslim mental health hospital. I think we don't have it. We don't have acute care facilities, you know, when Muslims are suffering with psychosis or, you know, deep, you know, deep and difficult and acute mental illness, we have nothing. And so they're forced to always go through, you know, secular and mainstream mental health services or going to the hospital because of that. And so I really want a revival of what Muslim mental health care was like, uh, you know, in the Islamic golden age and, and just harkening back to our, our all of our incredible work through these centuries in this in this field, because we need it. We need it for our Muslim brothers mm. and sisters who are suffering from you know, really, really difficult illnesses. Um, inshallah, inshallah, praying that I can work on that. <laughs> I mean, inshallah, it happens in the next decade. Inshallah, I mean. Jazakallah khair. Dr. Farah and Dr. Uthman, always a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us again on Double Take and congratulations on your study. Inshallah, it builds the foundation for amazing things in the Muslim mental health space. Barakallah fikum. Barakallah fikum, Brother Muhammad. Jazakum Allah khairan. Jazakum Allah khairan. It's a pleasure to be with you always on the